as, my, as, as I sat there just earlier, um, I got such an encouragement for little Eliza because she said, Dad, your ear looks a bit funny with that thing on your head. <laughs> so, uh, sorry, Eliza, just try and concentrate on the words, not my ear. Is that all right? Okay, um, over the last few weeks, we've been working our way through 1 Thessalonians. I think I should be pushing this. Are we up? So if you want to grab 1 Thessalonians 4.13 to 5.11, I'll read that in a minute. Um, now, with any series, this is, I think, series uh, or talk five among six in this series on 1 Thessalonians. Um, we've seen that Paul established his church uh, within a matter of weeks, but was forced to leave. And he's now pastoring from afar. So he's written this letter from Corinth. And Paul's primary purpose is to encourage uh, the Thessalonians to continue in their faith in the face of persecution. I always think it's worthwhile recapping on what we've done on the rest of the series. So uh, all those weeks ago, uh, in chapter 1, we saw Paul thanking God for their faith. And Neil preached on that gospel message at the heart of this. And then we moved on to chapters 2 and 3, we saw Paul's concern for the church, and Grant preached on gospel ministry, and then Martin covered gospel encouragement. And now in chapters 4 and 5, Paul has switched to exhorting the Thessalonians to live for Christ. And last week, although I missed it, uh, Neil was focusing on how we should live to please God leading a gospel life. And so tonight, our focus is switching on to Gospel Hope, number five in this series. Actually, let, me move. Let, me read, uh, let me read the scripture for tonight. So that's uh, chapter four, starting from verse 13. Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep, or to grieve like the rest of men, who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who've fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who've fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God and the dead in Christ will rise first and after that we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we will be with the Lord forever therefore encourage each other with these words now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And whilst people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of light. And sons of the day, we do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. 
But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. Amen. Wonderful scripture, isn't it? It's a great topic to to be given. Hope. So I thought I'd start, uh, I looked up hope in the Oxford English Dictionary, and apparently hope uh, is described as a feeling of expectation and a desire for a particular thing to happen. Now, I've not preached for a long time, so I hope that it goes all right tonight. More importantly, I hope that you can endure the two hours that I've prepared. (laughs) Actually, I was made to wear these little cufflinks, which uh, have a clock on them, so uh, Claire says she's going to set alarm off if I go too long. A few weeks ago, uh, my football team, or the football team I was made to support when I married Claire, Wickham Wanderers, um, they were they got to Wembley for the Division Two playoff final. And we were full of excitement, particularly when they scored. And within about a minute of the end of the match, they were still winning. And I had these huge hopes that they were at last going to get promoted. And as usual with football, uh, a goal was let in about 15 seconds before the end. So, you know, you plunge from the heights to the depths and back again. So we go through extra time and go into penalties. And again, your hopes, particularly, uh, particularly as we scored a penalty and they missed one, it again looked like we were going to get promoted. And of course, the usual thing happens in penalties. We let in, uh, they let in two, and we missed ours. So our hopes were dashed, unfortunately. Now, what would my emotional roller coaster have looked like? Obviously, I went up and down as I watched that match. But what I'm hoping is that tonight we will see Christian hope is different. What would have happened if I'd known the result before I watched the match? I don't think I would have been on the same emotional roller coaster. And I think that's what I'm hoping we get out of tonight, is our Christian hope should look different from worldly hope because we already know the result. We know the end of the story. And so tonight, although it's not new to anybody, we'll be focusing as a reminder on what that end of that story looks like. And it's that that we put our hope in. So hope is a a really important and powerful feeling, isn't it? It's It's an emotion. And our views of the future are influenced, and they influence how we behave today. I've been reading an interesting book. My sisters have both got uh, breast cancer at the moment, and I started, they were asking, why? Why does God let this happen? So I started reading a book by Philip Yancey. Uh, It's called, Where is God When It Hurts? And in it, he includes a chapter on hope. And he also describes a few, I hope they're quite old scientific experiments, because the the first one in particular is a bit gruesome. They describe this experiment where they take a rat, and they put this rat into a tank of water, And they watch it struggle and struggle and struggle for hours. 
until eventually it's overcome and it drowns, but it takes hours to do that. They then take a second rat and they hold it very tightly until it stops wriggling. And then they put it in the tank of water and it just sank and it gave up. That rat had lost hope. He also, in the same chapter, describes some experiments on humans. Now, they're not quite so gruesome and they don't put humans into a tank of water, but they test pain threshold. And they're looking at people who are in physical pain. And apparently, people who feel helpless, people who are in despair, people who feel without hope, they have a 50% increase in their sensation of pain. Isn't that interesting? So our attitude, our hopes for the future, actually have a, a, a relevant and direct effect on our senses. Hope is a really important uh, feeling and emotion. I think it's also, uh, hope is an antidote to fear. I think it's a strong, powerful motivation force. Um, I, in my 20s, I was an atheist. I came from a scientific background. I worked in the pharmaceutical industry, and I was surrounded by scientists. And I met a man who believed in Christ. He was in the next door office. And he started talking to me about his beliefs. And I think at the time, I have to confess, that I was afraid of death. And that is something that all people without faith will have some sense of fear of death. And I think it was my hope that there was something beyond, something more than this life. I think it was that hope and the optimist in me that helped me to continue in my discussions with Andy. And eventually, he led me to Christ. So we should never forget that our Christian message of hope, which we're focusing on tonight, it's a hugely powerful tool that we can use. There are people out there crying to hear that message. And I'm hoping tonight some of us will feel just encouraged that we want to go and share that message of hope with all the millions of people around us that need to hear it. So we move to this, uh, to this letter. And Paul, I believe, in this section that we're looking at, has three key objectives. The first one is he's trying to address some confusion amongst the Thessalonians about death. I think they were expecting Jesus to come quicker, and some of their members had died, and they didn't understand it. So he wants to address something around death and the confusion there. Secondly, he's trying to encourage godly living, and we'll touch on that tonight. And Neil obviously talked on that last week. And then finally, he's trying to encourage them to endure the persecution that they're suffering. So I'm going to, the three major areas I'm going to talk about are here. And Paul is using the message of gospel hope as the tool to achieve those three objectives. And what is that key message? It's a, re it's a recurring theme that he uses at the end of every chapter. I don't know if you've noticed, but at the, every single chapter in 1 Thessalonians ends with this recurring message. So at the end of chapter 1, he says, Wait for his son from heaven, who he raised from the dead. Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. And at the e end of chapter 2, he says, For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ when he comes. And then at the end of chapter 3, he says it again, just a different way. May he strengthen your hearts 
so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. He's using that message that Jesus is coming. And that is his message of hope. And now in chapters 4 and 5, Paul's going to go into more detail about that return of Christ. Our hope is not wishful thinking. It's the certainty that Jesus is coming again. It's the promise of death defeated. It's the promise of our salvation. And so many biblical prophecies pointed to his first coming. And of the 700 or so prophecies that have been, uh, have, uh, are in our Bible, about 80% of them have already happened. The remnant are about his second coming. We can trust these promises that Christ is coming again. So, he starts talking about death and death being defeated. At the heart of this message of hope, I think, is something really comforting for us as believers. Paul tells us that death is not the end. He says it's like falling asleep. He tells us in verse 13, do not grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. Now, I don't think that means that he's saying don't grieve. It's normal, isn't it? It's normal to feel the loss of somebody you love. And we as a church and the Andrews family as a family have experienced that real sense of loss and grief in recent months. But we have a comfort that non-believers lack. We've got the knowledge that the ones we're grieving are going to awaken. They're going to awaken from their sleep on the day that Jesus returns. And I think verses 14 to 18, along with Jesus' teaching in Matthew 24, where he focuses on the return of Christ, I think they're amongst the most exciting verses in Scripture. They're promises that we can trust in. And tonight, what I want us to do is just visualize the events that Paul and Jesus in Matthew 24, let's visualize what they're describing because it's that in which we put our hope. So in Matthew 24, Jesus describes the run-up to the day of his return. The world has become evil, increasingly evil. There'll be false prophets There'll be people claiming to be Christ, and many of these will be, uh, many people were going to be deceived. These false Christs will be able to perform miracles. There'll be wars, rumors of wars. There'll be an increase in famine and earthquakes. Well, what are we seeing right now? Are we not indeed seeing an escalation in all of those things? I don't remember as a teenager turning on the news and hearing uh, uh, every month the various calamities that we see, whether they're human-made or natural disasters, we are seeing an escalation in all of these things right now. And Jesus says in Matthew 24, these are the beginning of birth pains. He says there'll be an escalation in persecution of Christians. And again, are we not seeing that all over the world? One day, we too might face worse persecution than these Thessalonians that Paul's writing to. We just happen right now to be in the moment where this is a bit of a safe place 
There's many places in the world are not safe. And one day, maybe Long Crendon won't be safe. So this encouragement that Paul is writing is highly relevant to us. It just feels less so because we're in a safe part of the world. One day, the Antichrist will be ruling the earth. And at the point when things have got so bad in the Great Tribulation, one day, the Antichrist will be just at the point he thinks he's won. He's ruling the world. And mankind is living in such evil. And at that point, when it can't get any worse, the lights are going to go out. Literally. And that will herald the coming of our king. This is, the, this is the thing that we can make sure that we're not deceived on. Because these false Christs, we will, there will be no doubt that it is Jesus who's come. And it'll be a bit like being in the theatre. When you're sat in the theatre chatting and suddenly the lights dim. And it heralds the moment where the action's about to start. The curtains open, the lights go on, and you see the main act. That's what's going to happen on the day of Jesus' return. Because Matthew 24, Jesus describes this himself. He says, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give out its light. Just imagine this. You're just walking around or you're in the evening. Suddenly, everything goes dark. The sun loses its light. The moon loses its light. The stars fall from the sky. The heavenly bodies will be shaken. All natural sources of light will be extinguished. Can you imagine the terror that will come upon the world? Mankind will be terrified. And it's into this darkness will come Jesus, the literal light of the world. You will better, nobody will better focus on anything else than Christ, surrounded by millions and millions of angels, heralding the coming of our mighty King. That is a wonderful thing for us to picture that moment where he becomes the literal light of the world. He comes as a ruler rather than as a baby infant. What a magnificent sight for us. What a terrifying sight for the non-believer. Now what struck me hard as I was studying this passage was the writing in verses, uh, four, uh, verses 16 and 17. It says, The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Can you see, the bit that struck me, can you see that wonderful message of comfort? Those believers who are currently asleep, those people that we're currently mourning, they get raised first and this wonderful picture of together with them, we go to meet Jesus in the air. So those people we're mourning right now, we're going to be reunited with them and then go to meet Jesus. And I think that is a beautiful, comforting picture. Paul says, encourage one another with those words. He opens chapter 5 with what seems like a paradox. He says, uh, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. 
And even Jesus said in Matthew 24, no one knows the day or the hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, only the Father. And it always strikes me as rather ironic that theologians will spend lots of time and energy trying to calculate the day and the hour when Jesus himself said he didn't know. It's pointless. All we have to worry about, not the time or the date, but actually he is coming. Death will and is defeated. The paradox is that there are signs that Jesus talks about. Signs that the day is close. Signs that we're seeing now. And we Christians should be waiting expectantly for that day. We don't belong in the darkness. Our scripture tells us all we need to know in order to be prepared. And it's the non-believers who are saying peace and safety. They're the ones that suffered destruction. They're the one that it's like a thief in the night. Just like Noah. Noah was prepared in in a world of evil. Noah was prepared because he focused on God. It was mankind, the rest of mankind, that was wiped out. And in the same way, we need to be prepared. And that is the second uh, objective that Paul's trying to communicate here. He wants to encourage godly living. Now, biblical revelation, there's lots of prophecy in the Bible, but biblical revelation is not provided for fun, and it's not provided for intellectual stimulation. It's actually there, prophecies there, to give us hope, because it's talking about the future. It's, and the idea is it's, it's trying to influence how we behave, think, and act today. What we believe, as I said earlier, what we believe happens in the future will and should profoundly affect how we behave today. And that's what Paul's trying to achieve. The Thessalonians had been under the impression that Jesus was going to return, and he was going to return soon. And Paul uses that thought to urge that they live godly lives. In verse 6, he says, Let us be alert, let us be self-controlled, for those who sleep at night, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let's be self-controlled. Let's put on faith as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. There it is. The hope of our salvation should be the driving force for how we live our lives. Now, I think in church, sometimes we use a little bit of Christian, uh, Christian speak that I'm not sure non-Christians always relate to. So we'll say, I'll say, I was saved in June 1991. And I'm not sure that the non-Christian actually knows what that means. What do you mean, saved? What are you saved from? Who are you saved from? We are to be saved from a day of judgment. And actually, when you think about it, our salvation is not complete until this day that Jesus comes back. At the moment, it's a promise When Jesus returns, that's when our salvation comes to fruition. That's the day of its completion. And it's very interesting, when you look through the Bible, the day of Jesus' return is called different things in different books. So in Thessalonians here, it's called the day of the Lord. But in Peter, to Peter, it's called the day of judgment. In Revelation, it's worse, it's called the day of wrath. 
In Ephesians, it's a day of redemption. John calls it the last day. Jude calls it a great day. For us, it will be a great day because it's the day of our salvation coming to fruition. For those who are to be destroyed, it's a horrible, terrible day of wrath. So let's continue to picture that day. The lights have gone out. The light of the world in Jesus and his angels have just come into the world. This magnificent, stroke, terrifying event has just happened. Now let's picture it. What are we doing, personally, at that very moment? What if we're drunk? What if we're simmering with rage at some email that somebody annoyed us with at work? What if we're not speaking to our wife or a husband because we've had some kind of petty argument? What about if we're holding on to bitterness or long-term resentment and unforgiveness? What if we're watching something inappropriate on TV? It's that thought, that expectation of Jesus is returning imminently it really should affect how we behave, shouldn't it? We should be living our lives in expectation of Jesus coming back. And Paul says twice in verse 6 and then in verse 7, he reinforces this point. Let us be self-controlled. We are to clothe ourselves in faith, love and the hope of our salvation and we await the Lord's return. So that's Paul's second objective covered. He's encouraging self-control, godly living. And then finally he moves to an encouragement. And I think this third objective is really the underlying, overriding theme of 1 Thessalonians. He's there to encourage them to persevere in the face of persecution. God allows throughout the Bible, he allows persecution to occur. You think, why does God let that happen? He allows persecution for a time, and it's really interesting. He uses it for an interesting purpose. Matthew 24.10 says, Jesus said about the end times, then you will be handed over to be persecuted. You will be put to death. You will be hated by all nations because of me. And at that time, many will turn away from the faith and they will betray and hate each other. Isn't that horrible? Christians will fall away. They will turn, many will turn away from the faith. Persecution is a tool that God uses to sort the wheat from the chaff. Those who will be saved are those who endure in, the, in their faith in Jesus quite sobering isn't it and as we've seen Paul ended each chapter of 1 Thessalonians with a reminder Jesus is coming and he uses that promise as a primary encouragement keep going keep growing in your faith keep evangelizing keep loving Apparently, when you run a marathon, uh, I prefer to eat them than run them, but apparently you hit this brick wall around uh, mile 22. What do you need? You've got four miles to go. You just need somebody to say, you're nearly there. Come on, just keep going. 
That's the encouragement you need. And that's what Paul's doing here. He's, he's just saying, keep going, keep enduring, keep putting up with that persecution. Now, time is a bit of a problem to us, isn't it? It's an interesting concept, time. This letter was written 20, roughly 20 years after the death of Jesus and then his rising to be with his father in heaven. The Thessalonians were getting impatient for his return. That's part of what this letter is trying to sort out. And of course, we've now been waiting 2,000 years. Is Jesus really coming soon? We've waited 2,000 years. Is it really imminent? I think it's, it's no wonder, really, is it, that we've lost that sense of urgency that should influence how we live our lives. We've lost that sense of urgency because we've waited so long. Now, Einstein is famous for his theory of relativity, the relativity of time. He was a genius, and this theory was very complicated, but a reporter asked him to explain his theory. And he basically said, one minute sitting on a hot stove seems longer than one hour talking to a pretty girl. Time is different depending on how you look at it. And I think what we need to learn to do is to look at time viewed from God's perspective. It's different. God's time view is different from human history. One day, we too will be in eternity, and then we will be able to see this from God's eyes. We will fully understand. Our 80 years on earth, if you think about it, is a tiny brief instant compared to relative to eternity. And even 2,000 years, when you compare the 2,000 years, if you compare that to eternity, Really, that time period of 2,000 years, it's like the gunshot at the beginning of the marathon. It's that brief instant time. So from God's perspective, even 2,000 years is a really short time period. From the perspective of eternity, Jesus is coming soon. And that message should be enough to encourage us to endure if we are in physical pain, then we can cope because we know Jesus is coming soon and soon we will be with him in a place where there is no pain and we will actually have a new body. If we're grieving, we cling to that promise, don't we, that Jesus is coming soon and together with those loved ones that we're mourning together with them who've fallen asleep we're going to go and be with them and with Jesus forever and in a place where there's no death if we're suffering persecution if we're suffering from poverty if we live in fear because we're in a war zone we stand on the promise that Jesus is coming soon and we will be with him forever in a place where there's no hatred, no sin, no poverty, no war. It's good to remind ourselves of these things. Now as Christians, I think there's one more motivation that the message of Jesus should stimulate for us. 
time is short. If we think this concept of urgency, Jesus is coming soon. Time is short. There are souls to be saved. There are people facing destruction on that day of judgment. People need to hear this message of hope that we have. They need it. The weak need to be cared for. We need to be standing up for social justice. We should be active in our faith. And I always think, if you just think of the analogy, if you saw somebody stood with their backs to a bus and the bus is hurtling down the road at them, you see them in danger, what are you going to do? Are you going to stand back and think, is it politically correct for me to shout loudly at them or speak to them about their danger? You don't think, do you? You just shout at them, get out of the way. If necessary, you'll throw yourself in the path and you will get them out of the way of danger. How much more important is it for us to be saving people from spiritual, eternal death rather than just physical death? Why are we not shouting louder with everybody around us that they need to be saved from this day of judgment? So... Let's be encouraged. Let's remember the promise that Jesus will and is coming again. He's coming this time in majesty to rule the world. So let's cling to the promise. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more suffering. There'll be no more sin or death. And in the meantime, let's serve Jesus wholeheartedly. Let's lead godly lives. Let's be self-controlled. And let's lead other people to Christ and away from this day of destruction and also let's remember that line in our Lord's prayer let's pray it daily Lord your kingdom come on earth as in heaven that's what we're doing we're praying in Jesus' return he's going to come and put everything right let me close with this uh, scripture from Hebrews 10 Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. Amen. There probably are people here who feel despair rather than hope. So before Sally comes and leads us with some closing worship, let's just take a few seconds to to be quiet and let's just pray. So I'd like particularly to, to pray... If, if there are people here who, who feel despair, whatever their life circumstances, if that's you, let's just pray uh, that your despair will be replaced by that hope that God provides. Thank you, Lord, for rebuilding the ruins. Thank you, Father, that there is this promise that once we've fallen asleep, one day you will wake us up and give us a new body. Lord, thank you for that promise. Thank you that we will be together with people that we've loved. And together we will spend an eternity with you. Thank you for our salvation, Lord. So for those who are suffering through grief and despair, Lord, would you be the comfort? Holy Spirit, would you bring in that sense of hope and remind us all daily Lord remind us that one day everything will be put right 
We pray that you will replace despair and brokenness with that promise of hope, that certainty of what you're going to do. Thank you for reminding us of the end of this story. Lord, there are people here with broken relationships. We pray that for those that have given up hope, Lord, that you will be their hope, that their eyes will be focused on you, Jesus. Thank you that you teach us and help us to endure our life circumstances. Lord, for people who are stressed at work, people who live with anxiety, Father, teach us to turn our eyes to you. Teach us to remember that one day you are returning and you're returning to a world that will be put right with no stress, no anxiety, no despair. Lord, for those of us who are emotionally low, would you encourage us? Those of us that are striving in our work, striving in relationships that are difficult, Lord, would you give us hope and would you teach us to endure? And for around the world, Lord, our mission partners and many people we don't know, Lord, they're suffering. And for the Christians that are enduring persecution right now, this minute, Lord, would you keep their eyes focused on you and their thoughts on that promise of your return. Thank you, Father, that you are a God of hope, not a God of despair. And Father, would you use us to take this promise, this message of hope, to a world that is frightened of death, to a world that is despairing and stressed, a world that is grieving, but without your hope. Lord, would you help us to take that gospel message and take your hope into this dark world. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.